welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 389, The Tyrant and the Muddy Crossing. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode about narratives, where our information comes from, and how those who construct and select those narratives can have an enormous impact on how we understand the world. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Edward, Lois, and Max for signing up already. The shores of St. Valerie must have been quite the sight. Looking at the records, which discuss the size of this fleet and other notes that let us estimate the size of the original fleet that launched from the River Deve, and then comparing those to the records of the fleet following its mooring at St. Valerie, historians are able to estimate that William lost somewhere in the region of a hundred ships. Now, some of these would have been shipwrecked, but others would have just deserted. And in all, the hundred lost ships would have accounted for about 10 to 12% of his entire invasion force. Meaning that if these estimates are accurate, his fleet was decimated, quite literally. Making matters worse, the fleet had already burned through most of their supplies. And hungry fighters are dangerous fighters. Especially when you're in your own lands and the last thing that you want is for your army to go pillaging for supper. And putting a cherry on top, the weather had turned nasty. The remaining fleet was continually being battered by high winds and rain. And there was no reason to think that this would let up. It was September, so things would likely get worse from here. So if you were William, you might take in this scene and decide that it's time to pack it in and just try again next spring. And that is probably exactly what Harold Godwinson expected. It seemed pretty clear that this was a boondoggle and it wasn't going to happen this year. But I'm not sure if William could back down, even if he wanted to. The Duke had called in every possible favor. He'd burned through a ton of treasure building this fleet, and then assembling this army and keeping them fed and supplied for over a month. He'd even called in the f***ing Pope. But let's go back to that treasure, because I think it's a really big deal, and I don't feel like I've adequately explained exactly how devastating the expenses for this delayed campaign were. If you include the sailors, the workers, the knights, and any other fighters who had come along... The force that was assembled at the River Deve likely amounted to about 14,000 men. And because he can't do Operation Seahorse without horses, there were probably also about 3,000 horses there as well. And these would have been French war horses. And war horses at this point were probably about 14 to 15 hands high, and they were known for being quite muscular. Which makes sense, right? You'd have to be muscular if you were going to carry an armored knight into battle. So these things were beefy. And they also had an appetite. And so did their riders. Simply maintaining this many people and horses, while also, you know, avoiding starvation, would have been an enormous task. And it would have required staggering levels of resources. We're talking about a couple thousand tons of grain, probably about 1,500 tons of straw, and a bit over 150 tons of hay. And that's just to do basic maintenance and keep you from literally starving. And also, because people generally don't want to chew on raw grain, you'd need to cook that grain into bread, porridge, or whatever else the French were eating at this time. And of course, cooking would have required firewood. Approximately 400 to 500 tons of firewood, to be precise. And then you had the fact that these were knights. Knights were nobles. And nobles were not about to spend a month hanging out and drinking river water. So William was going to need to bring in some wine. And even if they just had one glass a day, something that I doubt Sir Stefan would have agreed to, but even if they just had one glass you're looking at well over 100 tons of wine. Tons! 
And that is if all the knights were showing a shocking degree of restraint and sobriety. And good luck with that. Now, as for the horses, thankfully, they were a lot less likely to insist on wine. But keeping them hydrated was no simple task either, because they'd need between 20 and 30,000 tons of drinking water each month. They'd also need to be cared for. They'd need to be brushed, shooed, all that kind of stuff, which means that William would have needed an army of blacksmiths to produce all the nails, shoes, and also to do the work of maintaining the assorted tack for all these damn horses. Oh, and you know what else horses tend to do a lot of? Shit and piss. With that many horses, you're looking at literally millions of pounds of horse shit and over half a million gallons of piss. And that leads us to another logistical concern for William. He would have needed a robust sanitation plan with a huge staff to remove the over 100 cartloads of stinking mess from these horses every single day. Otherwise, that camp was going to get really messy really fast, which inevitably would mean a bunch of knights would have their own shitting problem. And I've never worn armor, but I can imagine the last thing you'd want in that outfit is diarrhea. So the horse shit would have to be handled for everyone's benefit. Now, apparently, you can use horse dung as fuel for fire. However, after doing some really strange research that will definitely impact my Google ads, and then talking to some very nice but very confused horse folks about the drying times of horse dung, I learned that depending on the weather and conditions, it can take days to weeks to dry out those horse apples well enough to be used in place of firewood. And that's assuming that Normandy was dry and warm in the summer, which it wasn't. Furthermore, drying that much horse poop would have presented its own set of logistical challenges because you'd need to lay it out and, you know, tend it while it's drying. So that would have been a huge task all by itself. And as we don't have Poitiers saying, and then the mighty Duke warmed himself by a bonfire of horse manure, I'm inclined to think that they probably just had it carted away from the camp. Oh, and speaking of camping, you know what else they'd need? Tents. Even if you stacked all the Ralphs, Stephens, and Rogers all together at a rate of 10 per tent, you're still looking at over a thousand tents, closer to 1,500. And those tents were likely constructed from leather, which meant that unless the tents were procured ahead of time, this encampment would have required tens of thousands of hides from tens of thousands of slaughtered livestock. And those hides would need God knows how many tanners to cure and prepare the said hides. And then you have the construction of the ships. Apparently, there are about a thousand of them. And the wood required for this invasion was absolutely shocking. And that in itself would have required laborers to cut down the trees and transport them. And then you would need craftsmen, shipwrights, and even more laborers to construct the damn things. Not to mention all the rope, cloth, nails, tools, and everything else that you need to actually make a ship that could sail. And all of this stuff, as well as all the stuff that was needed to make the stuff, had to come from somewhere. Which meant it had to be made by someone. Which, considering the scale of William's invasion fleet, meant a lot of someones. Especially after that month's delay. And that was all before the disaster at sea, and the rush to make it appear like everything was going according to plan when they retreated to St. Valery. So expensive doesn't even begin to describe it. And sure, William wasn't personally paying for absolutely everything that was assembled. His lucky vassals were paying for a lot of this, and the foreign knights who joined up had likely brought some of their own provisions. But even with all that help, the cost of this campaign was more than enough to ruin the bastard. And that's the optimistic take on it. The fact is that William's vassals were Norman nobles, and most of William's reign had been marked by revolts, intrigue, assassinations, and instability. Because, you know, that's just kind of how Normans worked. And considering how much of a burden they'd taken on for this campaign, if it all collapsed without any payoff, how long do you think it would be before the barons started moving against William? 
And those were his vassals, which were like feudal employees. Basically, they were about as close as Norman nobles could get to having friends. But then you had the rest of France. For example, how long do you think it would take before Brittany would move against him? Or Anjou? Or any of the other myriad enemies and rivals that William had accumulated over the years? Furthermore, much of this army was foreign to him. They'd only come because William was promising riches and lands. These people had absolutely no reason to be loyal to the Duke unless they were being paid. Which meant, if William wanted to quit, he would have to announce it to thousands of violent mercenaries. Mercenaries who were parked in his lands and who all lived by a culture of violent feuds and grudges that could literally last for generations. So I think it's reasonable to assume that if William didn't get them English lands, these guys might decide to take Norman ones instead. Basically, this would be like trying to cancel Coachella when the first band had already taken the stage. But, you know, instead of hula hoops, everyone instead had swords. So while I think that sitting on the shores of St. Valerie and hoping that God would change the weather was kind of a crazy thing to do, and raiding the tomb of the patron saint of ladybugs was definitely a crazy thing to do, I honestly don't think William had many other options. He was all in on this. And by this point in 1066, he had to either succeed or he was going to die trying. So he really needed Big J to do him a solid here. Especially considering that by mid-September, William was still on the shores of Normandy. So his blood pressure was probably starting to get a little high. But across the channel, in England, things were probably starting to feel calmer. The Norman invasion that everyone had anticipated all summer hadn't materialized. King Harold had marshaled a massive navy and an equally large army, and they'd done their duty. They'd kept watch along the southern coastline, and they'd effectively scared off the Normans for the entire campaigning season. And the rough timelines that historians can reconstruct of these events suggest that Harold kept the ships and the furred longer than what was officially and typically required. The sink ports, the furdsmen, the thanes, and all the other assorted nobles and fighters had done their duty and then some. And it had worked. But now, as Ember Week approached, the mood had shifted because Ember Week marked the point where the ecclesiastical calendar transitioned from summer to winter. And winter was when the sailors of England would bring their ships to harbor, drag most of them ashore, and prepare for a season of cold and rain. Experienced sailors knew that the weather would turn sharply at any moment, and that brutal winter storms were on their way. Any sailor worth his salt would do everything necessary to avoid being caught in any of those conditions. So the time for sailing was over, which meant that the time for a naval campaign was also over. Only a madman would risk taking an entire fleet to sea in winter. A single winter gale could easily scuttle the entire enterprise. And so the English fleet and the associated army broke up and headed home. But apparently something went wrong. The Chronicle tells us that, quote, the ships were driven to London, end quote. Driven. And then it goes on to say, quote, many perished before they came home, end quote. And it's very possible that what happened here is that the English ships were caught in the very same storm that had ravaged William's fleet. Now, I have read one historian who theorized that William and Harold had a naval skirmish during this gale. He based this belief on a note in the Doomsday Book, which reports a thane from Essex named Athelrich, who died in a naval battle against William. However, I don't think this note is nearly enough evidence for an otherwise unreported naval battle between William and Harold prior to William's actual invasion. And it's much more likely that this was some sort of skirmish that took place after the events of 1066. After all, if there was a fight at sea even if it was a small one, I really would expect both the English and Norman accounts to comment on it, especially if it resulted in the loss of noble lives. 
So instead, I'm inclined to believe Poitiers and the Chronicle. Both of them report that the summer passed without event, and that when the fleets did finally move in September, they were hit by an early winter storm. Probably the same storm. And so, King Harold, with his defenses disbanded for the year, returned to his family estate at Bosham, along with his Huskarls. And then, sometime between September 13th and 16th, they rode to London. And it's reported that he was ill at this point, or perhaps even injured. But health misfortunes aside, you have to imagine that while Harold might still be worried about William generally, he probably thought, as he was riding back to London, that he'd successfully staved off the invasion. At least for this year. Meanwhile, in Orkney, things were moving quickly now. King Harold Hadrada was enlisting even more warriors to join his army. And this enlistment was going well. Even the sons of the great Jarl Thorfinn, Paul and Erland, had joined the army. And Snorri tells us that Hadrada recruited, quote, a great armed force, end quote, from Orkney. I'm not sure how many men and ships that meant, but considering that Hadrada's fleet was already quite large, well, it just got a lot bigger. And considering Orkney's bellicose history during this period, many of these warriors were likely very experienced and hardened veterans. One other thing jumps out at me with this recruiting drive, though. Because both of Thorfinn's sons joined the army, I wonder if that means that Thorfinn was still alive at this point, and maybe he was staying behind to govern while his sons were away. It's possible, though it is also possible that he was already dead and the sons left Orkney under the care of some other trusted family member or official. It's hard to say because Snorri doesn't tell us. Though Snorri does tell us that when Hadrada left Orkney, his queen and his two daughters stayed behind. He was headed to war, and so only his warriors and his son Olaf would head south along with him. But speaking of Snorri, much of what's happening regarding Harald Hadrada is coming from his account. And as we've talked about on the members feed, Snorri is very much providing a narrative. All of these accounts are, to be honest. Life and history is simply too complex to convey what happened without building one type of narrative or another. No matter how responsible and detailed an account is, things are always cut. They have to be. The world is just too big to include everything. Every single document has some form of narrative. And crucially, every narrative has an intended audience. And in the case of Snorri... His audience weren't podcast listeners spread across the world about a thousand years after these events. Nor was his audience contemporary Englishmen or even contemporary Norsemen. Snorri's account was for his fellow Icelanders in the 13th century, which means that this was written for an audience that was living over a hundred years after these events and who weren't part of the same culture that he was talking about. Both time and also geography separated his account from the people that he was discussing. The Norse of the 11th century and the Icelanders of the 12th and early 13th century certainly would have had some common ground. There would have been similarities in culture and language and some shared heritage. But we shouldn't pretend that they were the same. And as such, we should be mindful that in some ways, Snorri is a cultural outsider to Harald Hadrada. But, as imperfect as this account is, I think Snorri is our best source for what was going on with Hadrada during this invasion. And in the case of Snorri's accounting, there's less of a risk of a cultural mistranslation than with the English or French sources. And when it comes to Hadrada's invasion, I suspect the biggest risk in considering Snorri's account are simple factual errors owing to the fact that he was writing over a hundred years after these events. So we should keep this in mind. But according to Snorri, Hadrada was coming to England with an absolutely massive force. But Tostig was not yet among them. According to Snorri, Tostig hadn't joined the Norse fleet when they sailed south. Instead, he traveled to Flanders. And there, he gathered more fighters of his own and then brought them with him to northern England. 
Presumably, the plan was to lay the groundwork for the arrival of Harold Hadrada, and to make an effort at recruiting some English forces while he was there. And while Tostig had been so unpopular among the aristocracy of Northumbria that he was exiled, we should keep in mind that Northumbria was still Northumbria, and they were all about sectarian warfare. The aristocratic culture of that region was an engine of dynastic blood feuds and vicious zero-sum scheming. So there would have been no shortage of nobles who would want to see the downfall of Earl Morcar of Northumbria, or harbored a grudge against King Harold Godwinson. Furthermore, given the blended culture of the North, it's quite likely that there were also nobles who very much would have preferred a Scandinavian ruler like Hadrada over a Mercian-born earl like Morcar and his West Saxon liege, Harold Godwinson. So, despite the fact that Tostig was forcefully removed from power by a popular rebellion, it's very possible that as a vassal of Hadrada, Tostig was able to recruit locals to join Hadrada's army. And that does appear to have been what King Harold Godwinson's sneaky, resentful little brother was up to while he was waiting for the Norse invasion to begin in full. Because let's be honest, when the Godwinsons do a treason, they really go all in. Now, as for the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it tells us that Hadrada took England completely by surprise. No one was expecting a Scandinavian invasion. The English likely assumed that Tostig's sad campaign had ended when he failed at the Battle on the Humber, and nobody expected another invasion threat coming out of the north, at least not right now. And England being caught flat-footed is probably why Tostig and his recruits were easily able to join up with Hardrada and the Norse fleet when they reached the Tyne. Allowing these forces to meet and join up was a catastrophe. And they apparently were able to do this with no armed response, which again does suggest that nobody saw this coming. Next, we're told this combined fleet, quote, landed at a place called Cliffland, end quote. Looking at the name, its location, and what the name literally translates to, historians generally agree that Snorri was talking about Cleveland, a town on the River Tees, which would have been an enticing target as Hadrada was making his way south. And Snorri tells us that, quote, there he went on shore and plundered and brought the country in subjection to him without opposition, end quote. Now, the English sources don't mention this attack, and Snorri was writing long after these events, but I think it's plausible that Hadrada really did attack Cleveland. First of all, English sources rarely report raids, and I get the sense that raids for the medieval English scribes were a bit like trips to Wendy's for me. Too routine to merit being recorded, but also too embarrassing to tell anyone about unless you have to. Second, this fits within the strategy of Harold Hadrada's conquest. Landing in towns along the way would have been the only way for him to pick up the English recruits that Tostig had promised him. And if it turned out those recruits weren't willing or available, well, making some examples of those who refused could entice future support. And raiding would also be a way to pick up supplies as well as begin to impact the morale of the people you're trying to conquer. And finally, Cleveland, which literally does mean Cliffland, was right off the River Tees and directly on Harold Hadrada's route south. So it was convenient. The fact is, Cleveland would have been easily reachable by the fleet, was on the way, and it would have made strategic sense given what Harold Hadrada was planning. So I think it's entirely plausible that Snorri's account is accurate, and the English scribes either didn't think the attack merited comment or were just too ashamed to mention it. Now, Snorri doesn't give us many details about what happened there, but that's because it doesn't sound like it was much of a battle, more of a raid. And just like Snorri and his audience, by this point, we are all familiar with how raids worked and how brutal they were. And so with Cleveland subdued, Hadrada packed up his ships and continued his voyage for about another 45 miles, where he came upon another settlement. Scarborough. Now, Scarborough's name has made a lot of historians over the years believe that this town was a Scandinavian settlement. However, more recently, that's been challenged. 
And now some argue that Scarborough actually derives its name from the Old English term for the hill with a fort. And archaeology has shown that Scarborough has indeed been fortified in one way or another for at least 16 or 1700 years. But regardless of the origins of the place name, given Scarborough's placement on the coast, the Scandinavian settlement in the region, and the broader cultural mixing in Northumbria, we can reasonably assume that the community in Scarborough was broadly Anglo-Danish. And so, it would make sense that Hadrada would land there especially if he still believed Tostig's boast that he could deliver the loyalty of the English. The fact was, Scarborough was a logical recruitment center for Hadrada. But if that was the plan, he'd made a crucial mistake. He trusted Tostig. Because the people of Scarborough were not thrilled to see a Viking warlord show up on their doorstep. Nor were they happy to see that he was accompanied by their former scheming shitheel of an earl, Tostig. And so the people of Scarborough organized a defense against this invading Norse army. But fighting in the field was suicide. Hadrada had an entire fleet with him. Thousands upon thousands of warriors. Far more than what the Ferd of Scarborough had. And while some farmers with pitchforks might be able to bolster their numbers, they wouldn't last long against the heavily armed professional fighters that were making up Hadrada's army. So the people of Scarborough retreated behind their walls. They might not have numbers, but they had their fortifications. And if that didn't fully even the odds, it could at least buy them enough time for reinforcements to arrive. And if this was another war leader, that might have been the end of it. A different leader may have abandoned the fight and moved on. Or perhaps he may have laid siege and found himself surprised when a Northumbrian army came upon his flank. But Harold Hadrada was a Viking king. He'd been a captain of the Varangian Guard. This wasn't the first time he'd been faced with this sort of resistance. And Hadrada had a talent for thinking outside of the box and finding ways to turn the battlefield against his enemy. The defenses of Scarborough were certainly a problem, but they were also made of wood. And more importantly, there were homes outside of those defenses, and they were also made of wood. And overlooking those homes were several hills. So Snorri tells us that Hadrada brought his men to the top of one of those hills and ordered them to begin building a great bonfire. And so they gathered firewood. And this doesn't seem like it was a bonfire that you or I would make. This was the sort of bonfire that a Texan frat house would make. The way Snorri talks about it, it sounds like they chopped down trees and just put the logs directly in there. This thing was enormous. And then once it was fully blazing, Hadrada ordered his men to use pitchforks and push the burning logs down the hill and into the town of Scarborough. The houses caught fire, one after another. It was probably clear to everyone inside the fort that eventually, if this didn't stop, their entire town would be burned to cinders. And if this fire was allowed to burn out of control, it would eventually reach the fort. And so Snorri tells us the town immediately surrendered. But remember, this was Hadrada. The Vikings considered him to be a hard ruler. This was the kind of guy who wrote poems about how he slaughtered the disloyal. And Scarborough had just brought arms against him. And the fact was, if every English town that Hadrada encountered fought him like this, his promised easy conquest would quickly turn into a quagmire. He needed to ensure that the English would do as Tostig had promised and provide him with support, not opposition. And for centuries now, we've seen kings and warlords use fear and brutality to compel submission. And Snorri tells us that Scarborough suffered terribly. Quote, The Northmen killed many people there and took all the booty they could lay hold of. There was nothing left for the Englishmen now, if they would preserve their lives, but to submit to King Harold. And thus, he subdued the country wherever he came. End quote. And this quote right here is why I'm inclined to trust Snorri's timeline. I think Harold Hadrada did strike Cleveland and Scarborough. And in doing so, he wasn't just raiding. 
he was making the case for why the Northumbrians should switch sides. He was demonstrating that Harold Godwinson couldn't protect them, and that the price that their king was asking them to pay was their lives. The only path here was to submit. And after the submission of Scarborough, or, well, whoever remained alive in Scarborough, Hadrada continued south, appearing next at a place Snorri calls Helornes, which scholars believe was modern-day Holderness. And Holderness would have been right on course for him. Hadrada would have had to have gone round that peninsula in order to enter the Humber. But Snorri also says something odd. He tells us that Hadrada went over land from Scarborough to Helornes. And that would be about a 45-mile trek. So why would he do that? Well, Snorri tells us that the burning of Scarborough convinced a lot of Northumbrians to submit to Harald Hadrada. So perhaps he was pressing that advantage and forcing the submission of all the small communities that dotted the coastline from Scarborough to Holderness. And doing that would also help him gather up some of the Northumbrian sympathizers that Tostig had promised him. And Snorri does add that after Tostig joined up with Hadrada, he was able to bring the Norse king many English sympathizers, saying, quote, It happened, as he had foretold the king at their first meeting, that in England many people would flock to them, as being friends and relations to Earl Tostig, and thus the king's forces were much strengthened, end quote. And given the sectarian nature of Northumbrian politics, it is entirely plausible that Tostig still did have some friends in England, or was at least aware of which nobles would welcome a Scandinavian king. So I think it's entirely possible that Hadrada disembarked and proceeded on foot, as that probably would be the best way to gather supporters and also to demonstrate brutally what would be suffered by those who refused him. And as he marched, his ships waited at the mouth of the Humber. However, this tactic would have also slowed down his advance. And Snorri tells us that the English used that time to assemble a force at the Holderness Peninsula. And this also makes me think that Snorri's account is correct. Because if the invading force was split in two, the Northumbrians may have realized that fighting Hadrada before he had the chance to rejoin his ships and whatever forces he left on those ships would be their best chance at stopping this invasion. And sure enough, we're told there was a battle. Now, unfortunately, this battle, like the earlier battles, is conveyed to us with hardly any detail. But what we can glean from it is that the English may have underestimated the size and ferocity of the Norse army, because we're told that they were quickly defeated. And Hadrada, now unopposed at the Humber, rejoined his ships and began to sail up the Ouse. His advance was relentless. And the opposition that the Northumbrians were able to muster had been repeatedly broken. And for the people in Yorkshire, the sight of hundreds of drakars rowing up the river must have been terrifying. This man had already brought death and chaos to their homeland. Scarborough was burning. Ferdsmen were dead. Families had been shattered. And now he was rowing up the ooze, surrounded by farmland. Hadrada was moving through the Yorkshire countryside. It was dotted with villages and small communities that spent their lives largely at peace and producing the food that society ran on. But these people were also terribly exposed. They were mostly tenant farmers, structurally condemned to poverty thanks to the food rent and taxes that floated the noble class and also a punitive legal structure that foreclosed any resistance. Should they become injured or too sick to work, they could easily find themselves destitute. Furthermore, when harvests failed due to bad weather or blight, it wasn't the lords and land magnates who went hungry. It was the villagers. The lives of these people were forever on the brink. From the moment that they were born, they were just one illness, just one social calamity away from utter ruin. And those risks expanded exponentially when armies were in the field. If a noble wanted to compel submission of a rival noble, oftentimes he'd attack that rival's pocketbook. And that meant he would send his forces to the villages 
and farms. And there, they'd burn, pillage, and kill. For the nobles, this was a strategic attack on a rival's wealth. But for the farmers and their families, well, they were losing their homes, their livestock, and their lives. Every pig killed was a family that went hungry. Every house burned meant another toddler was without shelter throughout the winter. Every abled body enslaved and carried away meant another elder left without someone to care for them. And all of this was because they were pawns in some rich man's game. These people didn't have any interest in the conflict. They didn't seek it out, and they wouldn't gain anything from it. But it was they that stood to lose everything nonetheless. And even when armies weren't engaging in punitive raids, even when they are focused entirely on fighting and battling an opposing army, even then, the common folk in the fields suffered. First, the furred was drawn from these communities, which meant that the individuals who were gathered to fight and who were at risk of maiming and death were mostly farmers, the very people who kept their communities fed, who had people depending on them being in the fields making food, not wielding weapons. Furthermore, armies march on their stomach, and rarely do invading armies bring enough supplies to sustain them throughout the entire campaign. Instead, invading armies, and even defending armies in some cases, rely on what they call foraging, which is a euphemism for taking whatever food the local farming communities might have, often through force, or at least the threat of it. And if, at the end of this foraging, the farmers didn't have enough to make it through the winter, well, that doesn't seem to have been something that concerned the soldiers or their leadership all that much. So imagine it was you and your family and all your friends who were living in Yorkshire, and you were watching this fleet advance up the ooze. You might not have any personal interest in who wore the crown. You might not even know the difference between Harold Godwinson and Harold Hedrada. But this fight over a crown that you have never seen and would never hold meant that you might die. And even if you survived, it was quite likely that you'd have loved ones who would be injured, enslaved, or killed during this conflict. It must have been horrifying. Even the call for muster that was spread out throughout the region as Earl Morcar assembled his forces at York must have been a horror. These were farmers who were being ordered to leave their families and join an army. And I guess they just had to hope that their loved ones would survive whatever pillaging might come their way. Meanwhile, their loved ones would have to watch as their fathers, husbands, brothers, sons, and friends marched off to war and know that they may never see them again. Snorri, the Chronicle, Worcester, Poitiers, and virtually every account we have tends to talk about these battles from the perspective of the nobles. Nobles who tended to sit at the back of the battlefield or behind heavily guarded locations surrounded by a personal guard, and from there, they would order their troops around like chess pieces on a board. And so when we hear about these battles, they often sound heroic, or at the very least, academic. And for the professional soldiers and their noble commanders, maybe they were. But for the vast majority of people who were being forced to fight in these conflicts, it must have been horrifying at every level, even down to the mustering. And there was Harold Hadrada's fleet, numbering in the hundreds, continuing its slow, unceasing advance up the ooze. And once they were close enough to York, the fleet disembarked. The contemporary sources don't mention a location for this, nor does Snorri. But John of Worcester says that it took place at Rickall. And I'm not sure where he got that information from, but it would make a plausible landing site because it was close, but not too close to the city, being about a three-hour march from York. And that would give Hadrada enough time to assemble his forces before advancing upon the center of Northumbrian political life. And as for the people of that area... Well, they probably fled as quick as they could from the approaching army, leaving their possessions, livestock, provisions, and everything they couldn't carry behind them 
which was almost certainly looted by the disembarking fighters, who were now not just from Norway and Orkney, but were also from the neighboring towns and villages whose lords had decided to join up with this invasion. And I imagine those villagers probably fled to York, as it was one of the most defensible locations in the region. It was also where Earl Morcar of Northumbria was located, and surely he had a plan for this. Within York, there must have been a flurry of activity. The Earl, who was the youngest son of Elfgar of Mercia, was very young. He was also inexperienced. He was probably only about 15 years old. And when his father Elfgar had died, he'd likely only been 11. So his dad didn't have a lot of time to teach him how to be an English Earl. Nor do we have any indication that he fought in any battles. And why would he? He was about 15. And I think it's notable that whenever we see Morcar in the record, he was joined by his older brother, Edwin, who at this time was the Earl of Mercia, and he was only about 18 years old himself. The two boys appear to have always been together, and considering the situation that they were in, namely being very young and placed in positions of power that tended to be very politically dangerous, that isn't surprising. And for Morcar, that probably went doubly. Northumbria had a long history with bloody ends for their nobles. And Morcar didn't even have the benefit of being a Northumbrian. He was a Mercian. And on the one hand, that meant there probably weren't any dynasties running a blood feud against him already. But on the other hand, every dynasty had a better claim to the earldom than he did. Which meant he probably had few friends especially as he got older and became more difficult to manipulate. And now it was that same teenager, that young Earl Morcar, who was being tasked with organizing the Ferd of Northumbria, probably for the first time in his life. Luckily, his brother, Earl Edwin, was there to support him, and Edwin had brought some forces from Mercia along with him. But as I said, the two brothers were young and don't appear to have ever fought in a battle. And they were going up against one of the most battle-hardened and experienced kings in all of Europe. But at least they were together. And at least they had the Ferd of York and whatever fighters had come from Mercia. And as you're listening to this, you might be wondering where the rest of the English forces were. I mean, this was an invasion. So where were the men of Wessex? or East Anglia, or Kent? Where, for that matter, was King Harold Godwinson? I mean, this was his brother who was causing all this trouble. Shouldn't he be up here handling his own messy-ass family? Well, depending on the version of the Chronicle that you read, Harold Godwinson was in London and either only just hearing about this thing, or he'd heard about it roughly at around the same time as the burning of Scarborough, but he hadn't yet marched. Personally, I suspect it's the latter. It's hard to imagine that no one would report to London once they saw an invasion fleet of about 300 ships burning their way to the Humber. Especially considering that Tostig was involved, and that guy wasn't exactly subtle. So, that raises the question. What was King Harold doing in London, and why wasn't he in Northumbria? Well, one reason could be that mustering takes time. And that's in the best of circumstances. And Godwinson had just allowed most of the West Saxon Ferd to return home, as they had done their duties and then some. Also, according to some sources, they'd also run out of supplies. So, calling them all up again a few weeks later would have been difficult, not to mention unpopular. It's very possible that they were dealing with, for lack of a better term, war weariness. Harold was a new king. He wasn't from the traditional royal family, he was embroiled in scandal, and he had just spent the entire summer holding the Ferd of Wessex along with a massive supporting fleet on the southern coast in order to counter an invasion that had never materialized. That had been expensive. And now that harvest was coming up, Harold wanted to summon them again? To do what? Deal with some Northumbrian issue? And you can imagine that there must have been some southern nobles who took note of the fact that the Northumbrians and the Mercians didn't take part in that coastal defense that took place over the summer. So they were nice and rested. 
Why couldn't they handle this one and give the South a bit of a breather? There's also the possibility that Harold had spies who had noticed that William still had his army and he still had his fleet. And despite the fact that the weather was utter crap, they were still stationed just across the channel and were still apparently ready to cross. King Harold Godwinson may well have known what was going on in Northumbria, and he might have been holding his forces back because William and the Norman army could still attack. And considering that last time they'd launched their fleet the moment the English let their guard down, could he really risk leaving the South undefended in order to go and handle this? And besides... Northumbria and Mercia had a long and illustrious military history. Surely they'd be okay. So honestly, I can see this going either way. But this is one of those areas where the House of Godwin sowed the seeds of their own destruction. Harold's rise to power was paved in large part by the murder of King Gruffith and the utter devastation of Wales. In doing so, the House of Mercia had been robbed of a key military ally, Wales, and the Godwinsons became the unchallenged dynastic powerhouse of England. Had King Gruffith lived, and had Wales remained united, it's likely that Earls Edwin and Morcar, as the sons of King Gruffith's old ally, would have had the support of the powerful and experienced Welsh military commander, not to mention his army. Furthermore, Imagine if Tostig had been a better earl, or perhaps not been placed in Northumbria at all. In that situation, there would have been no need for the young Mercian Morcar to be installed in that earldom. Or imagine if Tostig and Harold had not feuded so bitterly. There are all kinds of things that the House of Godwin had done that directly led to this situation where Northumbria lacked key allies had a young and inexperienced earl, and was now left vulnerable to invasion. And on top of that, the cultural resentment, combined with Tostig's disastrous reign, was significant. Northumbria was so reticent to stand behind the House of Godwin that King Harold had to ride up there and seek their fealty personally. And according to Snorri, once Hadrada arrived, quite a lot of them offered him no resistance or even joined up. So it's hard to look at this and not see a starring role played by House Godwin. And now, with all the chickens coming home to roost, when Earls Morcar and Edwin needed the House of Godwin most, where were they? Still in London. The young brothers were on their own. We aren't given precise, reliable numbers but the two brothers probably had around 5,000 fighters in total. And on the morning of September 20th of 1066, a Wednesday, the army of Harold Hadrada marched north to York. But he didn't bring everyone. He left a sizable chunk behind to defend his ships and the encampment, bringing about 6,000 fighting men with him. It was more than what the defending brothers had to muster, but it wasn't an overwhelming disparity. And according to Snorri, when Hadrada was within only a couple miles south of the city of York, he chose his battlefield. It was a flat piece of land about a quarter mile across, and it, was, and it was wedged between the river on its west and a swamp penned in by a dike on the east. It wasn't much to speak of, just a muddy little crossing along a path. And later accounts give it a name. Fulford Gate. Full meaning dirty, ford, meaning crossing, and gate, or gata, meaning road. Now, there is some argument as to whether Fulford Gate really was the location for this battle. But wherever it was, these conditions were pretty good for Hadrada. The river and swamp would prevent any serious chance they could be flanked, and the narrowness of the stretch of land would keep the fighting tight in close quarters which favored Norse tactics. Strategically, it was their best location. It was also close enough to York that it would be noticed by Earls Edwin and Morcar, and far enough back that they wouldn't have to deal with the walls of York if things came to blows. 
Snorri tells us that Hadrada arranged his men in a line with two parts. One part was next to the River Ooze. Here, Hadrada put his most hardened and experienced fighters. But beyond the sheer experience that the fighters along the Ooze had, they also had numbers. This was the thickest portion of the Norse line. And of course, this was where Hadrada positioned himself. Nice and safe. And he flew his banner, called the Land Ravager, announcing his position. But on the other side of the line, next to the dike and the swamp, the line was significantly thinner. And it was also where, according to Snorri, Hadrada stationed his weaker and more inexperienced fighters. And once in position, they waited. And for some reason, Earls Edwin and Morcar left the walls of York and marched towards the Norse army. And that's something I've struggled with quite a bit. Why would they do this? Hadrada had an enormous army at his command, and their best chance at survival was to force the Norse into a siege, especially if there is any hope that the King of England might bring an army north and give them support. So leaving their fortifications and fighting the Norse on open ground seems like madness, or at least rank inexperience. And perhaps it was. But the more I've wrestled with this question, the more I keep coming back to a line in version C of the Chronicle. Quote, Then gathered Edwin the Earl and Morcar the Earl from their earldom as great a force as they could get together. End quote. As great a force as they could get together. Usually, the scribes say a great force, or a mighty host, or something along those lines. But instead, they tell us that this army was the best that Edwin and Morcar could do. That doesn't sound good. It sounds like there was more than a little dissension in Northumbria, and that many were siding with Hadrada, or at least submitting to him. And that would be in line with what we're also being told from Snorri. Snorri also mentions Waltheof, who was the son of old Earl Seward of Northumbria, being among those who were with Edwin and Morcar. Now, the English sources don't mention his presence, but it is possible that Snorri was correct. And that, like the damning faint praise we see in the Chronicle, could provide a clue for why the brothers brought their forces out of York and advanced upon Hadrada in the open. They might have felt like they had no other choice. If the Norse continued pillaging the lands along the Ouse and all around York, that could have undermined what little support the brothers still had among the Northumbrian nobility. Things were turning quickly, and a heroic opposition to this invasion may have been the only way that they could keep whatever little support they had. And the fact that Waltheof is mentioned and is spoken of as acting as one of the generals of this army, that makes me wonder if the brothers were in a situation where, if they refused to march and defend their lands, Morcar would find himself replaced by Waltheof. And let's be honest, Northumbria is not exactly known for peaceful transfers of power when the previous occupant was still drawing breath. So while it might be tempting to chide the brothers for making the decision to meet Hadrada in the field, I really wonder if they had any other choice. Now, as the Chronicle is rather terse about what happens next, I'm going to continue to rely heavily on Snorri. But remember, he wasn't there, and his record isn't infallible. So Snorri tells us that once the earls gathered their forces, they advanced upon Hadrada's line. And I don't know how long the two armies stood there looking at each other, or whether any attempts were made to strike a peace. But eventually, battle broke out. And we're told that it was the English who advanced first. Charging forward, the forces of Morcar and Edwin focused their attack on the portion where Hadrada's line was thinnest. That portion that bordered the dike. Given the disparity between their forces, Perhaps the hope was to concentrate the attack on the fighters who were farthest from the king in hopes that they would be the easiest to break. And if that was the plan, it worked. The English sources speak of a long and bloody fight. 
but the Norse line that bordered the dike eventually faltered and broke. The English, seeing their foe retreating, sought to press their advantage and give chase. And at the head of this charge was the banner of young Earl Morcar. He was going to crush this broken army. Only, Hadrada's army wasn't broken. His line of weaker fighters were simply retreating. And the vast majority of the fighters that the warlord had brought to Fulford Gate, a disciplined line of Hadrada's most fearsome and experienced fighters, still stood shoulder to shoulder on the banks of the River Ooze, waiting. And a more experienced commander might have noticed this. A more experienced commander may have taken note of where Land Ravager was positioned and questioned why the Viking warlord hadn't made a move yet. But Morcar wasn't experienced. Nor was his brother. They were young and untested, and Hadrada used that fact against the men at their command. The king, his bannerman carrying Land Ravager, and all of his best fighters surged forward and slammed hard into the disorganized and stretched out English army. And what followed was a bloodbath. Snorri says that the Norse charge was so brutal that it wasn't long before the English broke and fled the field in a panic. He tells us that some tried to flee up or down river, but most fled into the swamp, where English bodies piled up so densely that the Norse could walk across it without getting their feet wet. Now, that was certainly a poetic flourish on the part of Snorri. But the English sources largely do agree with Snorri's account. The Chronicle tells us that, quote, and there was much of the English people slain and drowned and driven away in flight, and the Northmen had possession of the place of carnage, end quote. John of Worcester tries to put a more positive spin on it by adding that the English put up a stout fight, saying, quote, but after a long struggle, the English, unable to withstand the attack of the Norwegians, fled with great loss, and many more of them were drowned in the river than slain in the fight. The Norwegians remained in possession of the field of death, end quote. But everyone, the English, the Scandinavians, the Icelandic poets, Everyone agrees that this was an unmitigated disaster for the English. And having seen the combined forces of Mercia and Northumbria break upon the shields of Hadrada's army, the people in the surrounding areas, having no doubt lost friends and family members in the slaughter at Fulford Gate, either submitted to their new Norse overlord or fled. But there still remained York. And behind those fortifications were many of the wealthiest and most dynastically powerful figures in Northumbria. So Harold Hadrada turned his attention on that ancient city. And we're told that the assembled nobles sent a message to Hadrada. And the fact was, they weren't all that keen on the Godwin sins at the best of times. But having seen their armies so thoroughly crushed under the Norse boot, and without any appearance by their absentee king and protector, well, that appears to have been the final straw. They would surrender York and submit to their new king, Harold Hadrada. The Chronicle adds that they also delivered hostages to Hadrada as a guarantee of their fealty. And they also provided their new overlord with provisions and agreed to support him in his conquest south. I assume that following this message, Hadrada summoned the remainder of his forces and their ships and ordered them to join him at York. On Sunday, less than a handful of days after the disaster at Fulford Gate, King Harold Hadrada, Tostig Godwinson, and the Norse army took possession of one of the central pillars of northern power and authority. And now, in London, King Harold Godwinson was moving quickly. York was lost, and with it, much of the North. If he held back in London, waiting for a Norman invasion that may never come, the rest of the kingdom very well could fall. And the fact was, Tostig had gone too far. He and his new Norse buddy had to be dealt with. And so King Harold Godwinson gathered his soldiers, 
and ordered them to take a forced march north. This move was bold. It was audacious. It was exactly the sort of thing that we would expect from King Harold. His rise to power and his military campaigns have shown that Harold was a supremely confident man, and he never failed to exploit an opportunity. And there was an opportunity here. If he and his men could move quickly, they might be able to take Hadrada and his forces by surprise. And so Harold, his Huskarls, and as much of the English army as he could gather were rushing north into war. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit. Find links to all the communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.